Welcome, Patricia Pino, to Scottonomics. Um, we're really pleased to have you today. So, Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. <laughs> Patricia, <laughs> you're an engineer by trade, but you're also the co-host of the MMT podcast, and you recently completed an economics master's. But um, first of all, I'd like to know a little bit more about your day job. Oh, my day job. Um <laughs> It's very geeky. Um, I trained as a mechanical engineer uh, back in, graduated 2003, and 2008, sorry, I started 2003. And uh, I straight in went into the built environment and uh, doing as well as the um, oil and gas sector, doing CFD and I, a mixture of things. And then I settled into back again into the built environment, but doing a sort of a wind engineering, um, a pedestrian comfort, indoor air studies, uh, thermal comfort. So everything basically that of a building that you don't see. So we say that good engineering is that engineering which you don't notice because everything is working great and you don't know, you don't feel uncomfortable or anything like that. That makes complete sense. So <laughs> Now, tell us why you got interested in economics. When did that happen? Well, I, I think it has to do with the time that I graduated. You know, I graduated during the um, the Great Recession and there was little work. And I think people were starting to grapple with the weaknesses of our economic system. And there was a lot of information out there on banks. And it just sparked my curiosity and uh, about how the whole thing works. And uh, But it, it took a few years for me to make the leap. Um, I think it was after um, the austerity measures started being proposed in the UK and there was a lot of talk about, well, you know, the debt is too high because of the financial crisis and we need to reduce it. And there was this like real sense of urgency from politicians about the debt. And, you know, a very simple question that arose in my head was, well, how do you know the debt is too high? You know, and, and I don't know if that, sort of line of inquiry is related to my job in a sense but I really hate not knowing how things work and and why behind things so the first thing I did was go and inquiry with friends who had um, actually studied economics and I thought well they'll know they'll, they'll be able to tell me and it was very obvious very quickly that they didn't know um, they they would give me answers like, oh, it's really difficult to tell because you need, you know, you don't know for sure and this and that. And uh, so, you know, I contrasted that against the very kind of self-assured tone that used by politicians at the time of the debt is too high and we need to reduce it. And it just sort of, it became obvious to me, you know, they're lying, right? They, they don't know. They're, they just want it to be high. Um, and the idea was that, well, if you cut welfare, um, if you have to, you know, cut benefits and, and put a lot of, push a lot of people into poverty, then you better make sure that, you know, you're doing it for a good reason and that this is not just um, kind of false alarms, if any sense. So it really pushed me into trying to understand, you know, why don't they know when the debt is too high? It, it just also seemed really confusing to me that nobody would know why. And uh, and uh, I went, for, I started in mainstream economics, sort of trying to understand the answers. And there was nothing there that clicked that made sense from a logical perspective. 
until a friend of mine who worked with me suggested I read Bill Mitchell's blog. And it took me a while to understand it because it's very heavy, as you know. But when it clicked, it just everything fell into place. And and suddenly I understood a lot. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's an understanding of the mechanics of money, obviously, but there's also an understanding of the political aspects of money. And, and it made sense, you know, not just, okay, when is there too much debt, which is never, uh, but also why are politicians saying this? You know, what role does austerity play in the whole redistribution of income and, and that? So, yeah, that, that was pretty much my journey. How long did it take you to, 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 to realise that from, I'm looking at it, I'm reading some traditional kind of classical economics books and I'm not finding the answers to, to that moment when you thought, I get this. Oh, God. Um, I think at the beginning it was... Uh, very slow. I think it wasn't up to 2010, 2011 that I was seriously inquiring about this. And then it wasn't until maybe a couple of years later when it really clicked. And uh, and since then, the thing about it is that once it does, you can no longer divorce yourself from it. You, you, you are involved now. <laughs> you are you are committed and you feel a, a certain... Um, um, responsibility yeah, yeah to yeah. do something about it yeah so I, I i thought to myself i'm either going to be you know screaming at the tv for the next five years because of this or i or i'm gonna have to go out there and actually try and do something productive and to change things yeah that sounds like probably something as well that maybe comes from your being an engineer as well <laughs> to do something practical about oh, yeah. it yeah is that, is that <laughs> how you ended up um, doing the mmt podcast with christian yeah, I, I mean, it, it was a lucky opportunity from from my point of view because he was actually the you know the one with the he's a showman, of course. He's really good at what he does at entertaining people, and he liked podcasts very much. And I didn't know anything about podcasts at the time, but I was doing what I knew how to do, which was to like write little articles here and there to try and help disseminate information on MMT. And then he decided to uh, have me as a, as a test guest on the podcast right at the beginning. I think I was the first one. Pretty sure I was. And uh, and just to talk about MMT and to talk about one of the articles I had written. And it, it, it was a really good dynamic. And at the end of that episode, which we had at a local pub in London, um, we were having a beer and he said, we should just do this <laughs> like really like regularly. And I went, sure, why not? You know, and, and that, that's really when the whole thing started. Um, but I, I realized I really like talking to people. You know, I don't know, sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's a bad thing, but uh, it, it's just something that, um, yeah, I really enjoyed. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I've enjoyed the MMT podcast over the years. I found it really, really interesting. I've listened to most of them. Um, so, Going on from that, I wanted to maybe go to the fact that you've just finished uh, a master's in economics. And mm -hmm. I think that that's, that was a really interesting choice because I would have imagined that there'd be some cognitive dissonance when you were doing that master's. How was that mm -hmm. for you? Um, again, I, I think now that I think I look back at all my decisions since, you know, since I started even becoming interested in, in in economics, a lot of it was informed by my approach to engineering. And, you know, since the, the whole kind of curiosity of it, um, 
and wanting to know how things worked. When it came to choosing a degree, you know, by the time I decided, no, I'm going to do a master's, it, it was just a moment to make what I felt that I already knew official. And I thought it would give me new tools and, and uh, sort of more insight into how things worked. And by, by how things work, I mean to say, whether we like it or not, the mainstream, well, is the mainstream at the moment. And in order to change things, you need to understand how things work at the moment. So I wanted to understand their mindset, understand where they were coming from. And, you know, I was re prepared for it to have an influence on myself as well. And, um, and sort of learn, you know, what, um, because I, I think that sometimes what can happen is, if you don't have that, if you don't immerse yourself into the other side's point of view, you can get a very caricatured idea of what their intentions are, of what the motivations are behind that. And what I find is that things are far more complex than they're typically portrayed. And, uh, and uh, these systems kind of perpetuate themselves due to a variety of influences. It's not just, you know, one single core um, motive and, uh, and and I really wanted to understand that so that was that was my my view but also because you know I had I had um, I was lucky enough to have a scholarship for what is a, I consider to be a really good university and it just was was an opportunity that I really couldn't pass. So uh, I wanted to get a bit more about your experiences of doing that and interactions with your uh, the teachers and also interactions with the other students. So can you tell us a little bit about how that was and what interesting things occurred during the time that you did this master's? Uh, and also how annoying were you for everyone else when you kept putting up your hands saying, I was actually, probably, yeah. can I just double check because I don't, yeah. Yeah, I, I was probably very annoying looking back. I was very, there were a couple of moments when, yes, I got really frustrated because I felt that what was being implied, maybe, and it, this is not the teacher's fault, it's just that the theory implies a certain view of human beings that I didn't agree with. I very aggressively did not agree with. And, um, you know, the whole thing was done through using Teams because it was in the middle of the pandemic and, um, uh, luckily, I had the opportunity. So people could you know. put you on mute then. Yeah, yeah, that, that. <laughs> yeah they can. But I, I, you know, I had the ability to like scream on my own, and well, nobody knew any better. No, so maybe that helped a little bit. But um, I mean, most of my experience was confirmed what I already understood about the mainstream uh, in terms of what the theory says. What um, I understood a little bit more about how it developed. And I thought that was really useful. Um, and I understood well, a little you, bit more. You, could you maybe expand on that? Well, um, they don't they don't give you a detail of, you know, economic history. There, and there should be. I, I wish they had. But they do give you a little bit of, okay, so, um, you know, Friedman said this and then another, another person um, uh, picked that up and changed it into this. And you realize that, and, and you know, the Philip, the, how the Phillips curve developed and how it's gone through various transformations over time. Initially, it was about wages, wage uh, inflation, and then it became about um, just inflation in general. At first, it was about employment and then it became about output. And... But through that, you see, um, I, I started to understand it as a bit of a compromise between what they consider to be 
the progressive side and the non-so-progressive side. So the, the really conservative monetarists versus the, the new Keynesians, basically. And what where we are now, it seems to be a more the result of a negotiation between those two sides rather than a, the result of a you know scientific um, method um, and and of course you know the new Keynesians feel like you know they were pushing the more um, humane side of the argument in a sense but as we know is 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 limited in that regard as well from our from an MMT perspective. And uh, and they both agree on very major things, you know. They, they both agree on on the fact that the government is constricted financially, and um, and, and that in itself restricts the amount of action you can take to help people and and to shape markets, and and that's where we're at. So I think that's partly why um, there is a lot of contradictions in 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 the theory, because you have two slightly different sides trying to push their own narratives. And so what, what you get at the end is not necessarily consistent. Um, but, but, but in essence, they're still very much agreeing with, you know, the majority of the principles, yeah. aren't they? And, and I, yeah, think, I would love, when I did my economics degree at uni, I would love to have started where, where did this thought come from? Why do we think that people are rational? Where is the evidence for this? Why do we think that we're able to kind of use everything as a resource and treat everything in nature like it's another input? That was all just kind of, it just starts with, okay, here we are. We've got stuff. We need to use it to make things for us to, 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 for us to be wealthier. And you have to kind of start there. And when you start there, everything kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It all makes sense. But you just kind of want to take a step back and say, well, hold on a minute. Who gave us the right to treat the earth and uh, and other people as this kind of resource for us to just use? And where's this idea that individuals are able to make the best decision for themselves and for everyone else? We never got to do that. And again, that frustration must have been there when you've lived. You know, when you've lived, it's okay when you're 19 and you go to university. But when you've lived a bit of life and you start thinking, but that's just not true. Did you I have remember. any moments like that, or were there any phrases that you thought? Not that phrase again. There was a particular moment that, uh, you know, it was a while after I started where it, it really frustrated me, um, particularly because I, I was, you know, I was also sharing spaces. I, I could speak to the other students and sort of get a get, um, sense of how they absorbed the information. You know, they were, most of them were much, much younger than me. And uh, you know, they came at it from fresh young eyes, whereas I come at it from a, I've already had a job and gone through all these experiences and now I'm revisiting uni. But um, basically, the, it was about, um, it was the macroeconomics class, <laughs> actually. And it was about um, uh, the, the general equilibrium model and including unemployment uh, equilibrium. And there was a, a statement made about um, how wages, if if wages went too low, then uh, workers would not be offering their employment because it's not worth um, um, working, and therefore you need to, um, you know, that 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 is the kind of balance between workers choosing not to work and and how much employers need the workers, etc. That arrives at the right kind of level of unemployment. But they, they, there was an implicit assumption there that workers could choose not to work. And, and so 
I I made that explicit question. I said, are you saying that work is basically choose not to work? And the response I got was something in line of, uh, well, yes, because um, there are certain countries where unemployment is higher because welfare is too high, you know, and, and they, there's no incentive to work. And I found that really disappointing. Um, but later on, speaking to students, other students, um, and these are, you know, these are all people who otherwise in other situations have very good intentions they all want feel like you know they they want to help people and they want to do what's best it's just that they consider these things to be almost fact and therefore you have to work within these constraints and other students um when i said i don't think that doesn't make sense to me that people could have a choice not to work i mean if you don't work you starve period <laughs> and um and the other students were like well Within this, I guess it makes sense. Within, within a very reduced version of, you know, um, within the conditions that they had said, yes, I guess it makes sense. But only if you put the blinkers on the side of your head and understand it like that. And then I realized that, I guess, that it wasn't that these students didn't want to be good economists. It's just that they were very much focused in the moment of, I need to... I need to get a good job. I need to do well in this class and get a good job. And then I'll have the opportunity to actually have an impact in society. But you have to go through the motions. And that in itself encourages a certain degree of unwillingness to, you know, rock the boat and unwilling because um, you don't want to be perceived as problematic. You don't, you, you just want to really, the, the most efficient way to get through all this is to just learn what you're given and do well at the tests. And that's it. So, I was doing it because I'm crazy, I guess, <laughs> you know, the, um, but, and, and because I had other interests, I, I already had a career, so I had less to lose, I guess, than these other students. And um, yeah, that, that's one of the kind of key moments where I, I, I felt like I learned something about, well, human beings and about how these ideas perpetuate without having to necessarily rely on the notion that oh human beings are just bad intentioned and you know they they just want to hurt people um, yeah that's it's and then you you remind me of when i was i went to art school when i was about 24 so i had worked for a number of years before i went to art school and you know at one of the lectures one of the teachers said to me medigliani was thinking this when he did this and I just came <laughs> and went how could you possibly know that <laughs> what are you talking about? So I think, uh, and I also did quite a lot of that when I did my science degree, which I just graduated from in 2015. And so I think I think every course needs to have lots of mature students going, but why? <laughs> but why? Yes. Um, you can yeah. see people that pressure, that pressure to pass, get a job, be independent financially. Um, restricts their uh, ability to uh, possibly exhibit independent thinking that might threaten their their, their potential income in the future. Well, um, I, I guess there's an element of that, um, as I said, but there's also, I, I think one of the key aspects for me was that the curriculum itself, and this probably has to do a, a, as well with funding pressures of universities, um, the curriculum itself is very uh, lean in terms of focus on the, you know, on the, on the facts that you got to get through, on the material that you got to get through. And there was very little time for um, 
additional discussion or encouraging even, you know, questioning from students and alternative points of view. Um, we got some of that uh, amazingly through some of the, um, the, the tutorials, because in the tutorial, sometimes you'd get through the exercise quicker and the, um, the, the, the person teaching you would be a teaching assistant for the most part. And, and they were, you know, telling us about the research that they were doing a little bit. And, and that encouraged a bit of discussion. But I really wish there had been a lot more. I think there was, it was very, maybe COVID had something to do with it as well, because the program was very much compressed as a result of COVID and the lack of face-to-face -face interaction can make things worse as well. Um, but there were very few opportunities in which to actually, you know, encourage the students to get new ideas, you know, think about a different way of doing things. Um, and that was, I remember that being different in my engineering course where actually we were encouraged to be more creative about current problems that hadn't been so solved and um yeah and i and, and as i said it may be a matter of change of circumstances in general it may be a matter of change of stars at university or it may be a matter of change of um just the subject matter in itself yeah you talk about um some of the uh the illogical things that you come across for example you know people are rational which is <laughs> You know, it, it's, it was very surprising for, for me when I came across that because it's like, well, have you ever been out your front door? Because that's, that's just, that's a crazy thing to say. But there was there was an interview you did with Stephen Hale, who we interviewed in our first programme, where you said something along the lines, and I didn't, I could, I could never hear it exactly, but it was something along the lines of you said, if we did that in our profession, we would be sacked. Do you remember what that was? I can't remember what the question was, but I think it was about um, the point that I was making was that um, in engineering you have, um, or, or you are encouraged from a very early age to have a set of competencies that are considered to be essential for, um, for operating as an engineer. And the reason why they say that these competencies are important is because you know, engineers have quite a high degree of responsibility as well. We need to make buildings that do not collapse. We need to um, make sure that the systems we design are not harmful to people. And there is no way of, of, of completely avoiding those risks. You know, engineers make mistakes all the time. But um, there are a set of kind of codes of conduct that you can have to avoid the most... Um, uh, in, pervasive ways in which these mistakes are made so um for example uh, to be to become a chartered engineer which is kind of inbuilt into most engineers head that that's the thing you have to get in order to arrive at a certain level in your career is the one of the first lines is that that you commit to uh, do a service to society for example and you commit not to um not to accept briberies and you commit to not have conflicts of interest that may influence on your on your work and um and i think uh, i was i always assumed that economists had the same thing <laughs> because if engineers have a lot of responsibility on the social side then economists have even more responsibility on that side so i always assumed that they did and um it's not to say that engineers necessarily agree on what it means to be of service to society. It's just that we're encouraged to think about that aspect of our job every time that we make that we make a decision about it. So 
uh, university, for example, there was a lot of debate of, of whether students would be willing to work for weapons manufacturers or not. And there was it was an ethical debate. And it's not to say that everybody agreed what, on what to do. Um, it's just that at the very least, we were talking about it. And I don't see, I didn't see much about that in, in, in economics. And I think that, yeah, there, there are certain small rules about, um, uh, for example, explicit mentioning of assumptions at the beginning of a model or certain steps that you need to do to check your model in before you can actually implement it uh, on a practical basis, you know, release it as a product or, or really, or release a design of a building. Checks that, it surprised me to learn weren't really part of of the economics profession. Um, that they are, I think they're they they have this belief that if you have something like that in engine in economics, then you are restricting thought in economics, uh, or you are um, restricting creativity, or you are trying to kind of limit the. Mm. Their I, I studied. I studied with a few uh, engineers at university, and you know, one of them was a mechanical engineer. When mm -hmm. a couple of my mates were civil engineers, and the idea that the mechanical engineer could just go and design a building was as ridiculous as it was that the the mechanic the the civil engineers would go and try and set up you know design batteries. But but when we look at economists and um, Professor Stephen Keane is quoted on us as uh, one of our shows as saying these bloody idiots, okay. you know, these idiots. I mean. These overstretched idiots believe they can apply their model to areas that they have no knowledge about whatsoever, which is climatology. Very, yeah. Economists are very arrogant about their models and their assumptions yeah. <laughs> in a way that, in a way that as, as a mechanical engineer, you know, you would just be laughed out of a room with a group of civil engineers if you were trying to tell them that actually this was applicable to what they're doing. Do, do you agree with that? And can you see that difference between a, a proper discipline Sorry, I hate to see it. A proper discipline like engineering and then something <laughs> slightly different like economics. Well, I think there are egos everywhere, <laughs> first of all. Um, the thing about engineering is that, um, it, well, one of the good things about studying engineering is that you get, once you're out of uni, you get an array of options of what you want to do. It's a, it's a numerical degree. You can go into finance if you want. You can, you know, anything that requires math is good. You can go into hundreds of different types of engineering, more practical, more consultancy-based, more client-facing, more design-based. And um, so in all, in having all those options, um, you get obviously differences in wages and differences in, in the status that each of those jobs provides. And I find that there is a big temptation when you leave university to go into the finance sector because it is one of the major sectors that hires from the numerical people. And the difference in wages between finance and, and, and an engineering consultant, for, for example, is enormous. So um, you find then that the people who actually stay in the engineering profess profession have actually gone through that thought process of, you know, money or or, or society or, or, or vocation. or And they tend to be, therefore, people who do engineering, they tend to be more committed to the value of their work they they do see you know they they want to make sure that they do good work for the most part and um and they at least in recent years more and more a lot of them care about sustainability and a lot of them care about um trying to um 
improve the world through new technology and new advances. And I think that in economics, I mean, I, I haven't, I haven't experienced the economics kind of job environment, but I suspect that what from what I've seen is that there is a an awful lot of status associated with you know reaching the top of your economics profession usually means working for a bank, um, if if you don't want to do policy directly, um, and um, or working for the central bank, which is probably the same thing, <laughs> and uh, and then so there there are different motivators there, and I think that maybe that's why the people who make it at the top of the economics profession tend to be of a certain kind of a, a, have a certain idea of themselves uh, within society and a certain idea of what their wages mean whereas engineers are usually in their heads at least accepting you know lower wages for better quality of job I think you've explained really well about the the, the dangers of uh, not maybe thinking about do no harm in your profession. You know, obviously medics have the same thing where they have to think about do no harm. And I'm interested to know that engineers actually have the same philosophy as well, which is clearly very important as well. But you're right. I mean, economists uh, are often in very uh, influential positions and, and that should be something that should be part of their profession as well. And I think also that danger of siloization, which I think they, they suffer from as well. Um, I remember reading about a couple of economists at the start, um, the, the beginning of the uh, 20th century, who were trying to find the reason why um, the, the economy had expanded over this particular time and they were looking at prices and things like that. And, as, and you know, as soon as they mentioned the dates to me, I went, oh, yeah, that was when sanitation came in. <laughs> so, you know, if you're if you're interested, I, I have an interest in, in medical history, so I knew that right away. But if you, you're not talking to people outside of your profession and you're not mixing, then you're you're not going to see that um, point of view. So siloization, really a big problem in a lot of professions, I think. But... Um, the the uh, I want to come back to your interest in the MMT. So you describe how one night that really came to you that you started to understand what what Bill Mitchell was trying to teach you in his blogs. Can yeah. you ex talk a little bit more about that? As I said, it suddenly clicked, and it clicked at one a.m. Uh, when I, when I was about to try to go to bed, and uh, my partner at the time didn't appreciate me waking him up to talk to him about this random thing called MMT. Um, but um, I think what clicked about it is that I realized that I had everything upside down in my head. And maybe again, once again, engineers are very kind of visual people. They construct machines in their head and try to understand how a system works. And um, and I realized that I was, you know, putting the flow of taxes here and then the government here trying to feed the government and then the government does whatever it does and then I realized no I've got that upside down it starts the other way around and once I did that everything fell into place and then uh, and I think immediately after came the shock of oh my god austerity is terrible <laughs> and um yeah so as I said it it is a it is a technical recognition and then it follows the kind of the ethical implications of that system. So, I mean, now um, that I think about it, this idea of putting it upside down is that this taxes and government down here, it could really be seen as a private sector and then government. Whereas if you turn it upside down, you realize, well, government, then private sector, it can also be a metaphor for the hierarchy of power you know, in the system. And suddenly, uh, if you understand things that uh, you understand that the market is created by the government, you understand that the private sector isn't isn't um, 
kind of uh, enabling the government in any financial kind of way, um, then you realize you realize where the power lies, and you realize that there are all, all these options available that you hadn't considered, and that you the solutions that you had been thinking about, you know, how to change the world under which most people operate, under which most economies operate, is really a restricted view of of the economy because it immediately rules out the government as from being able to make any meaningful change and um, and being quite severely financially constrained. I think it'd be really good for our um, listeners and, uh, and those watching for you just to sum up what MMT is. <laughs> that question is hard. It's very difficult. Um, MMT is a description of the monetary system. So yeah. a lot of people think that it's a new policy that has to be introduced to change things. Uh, it, it is not. It, it's how things work as it is now. It's, it's, it's just a new way of looking at how the monetary system works, how the, what the relationship between the government and the private sector is when it comes to money. Uh, the thing is that, and why it's so popular amongst activists, is that once you understand it in this way, it opens, as I said, a lot of policy options that you hadn't considered. And MMTs have very different views about the, the right policy options, but they all um, agree on the, the main um, MMT kind of policy proposal, which is the job guarantee. And the reason why they focus on the job guarantee is because at the moment, the way that we look at inflation and unemployment is, as I said, you know, a monetary system where um, monetary policy where you have to adjust interest rates and somehow uh, balance unemployment and inflation. In, and, and there is kind of a sweet spot where you get the right level. And that's what they call the natural rate of unemployment or, or, or the Nairu, sometimes they call it. Um, so um, MMT does away with that. MMT says you don't have to compromise. You don't have to throw people under the bus and accept that there is going to be a certain amount of people permanently unemployed or who are undergoing poverty at any one time. You can ensure full employment and you can ensure price stability. And the policy by which to do that is the job guarantee. Um, so that's why the job guarantee is so um, important to MMT to the point where I would say, and I think uh, quite a few MMT economists would agree with me that it is it is an intrinsic part of the MMT framework. It's like what replaces the Phillips curve effectively, um, and uh, but everything else, you know. Is is really optional policies on top of that. Yeah. So you know you can you can spend money on um, giving your friends who have pretend PPE businesses. <laughs> you can give money to them, or you can actually maybe um, enable people who have perhaps the machinery to create PPE to actually do it properly. It's mm -hmm. it's really a political choice, and what your political choices are. Yeah. So MMT. Um, I think it, it works on under a, a few premises. The, the first premise would be that a, a monetary sovereign government, one that issues its own currency, um, uh, can uh, can never run out of its own currency, um, and uh, and does not need taxes or debt to fund that spending. Um, a lot of people will note that 
you know, th there are countries out there that issue their own currency, but they have a lot of debt and uh, and they have all the resource constraints. Uh, well, MMT talks about the availability of resources, of real resources, you know, workers or, or materials or, or, um, or machinery as the key limiting factor in that spending. So it forces you to think about what you have um, in your economy and uh, and what 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 you can mobilize as the limiting factor in what you can provide for your population rather than just an arbitrary money <laughs> um, uh, constraint or financial constraint. Patricia, I want to thank you very much for coming on to Scottonomics and explaining your experiences both as an engineer and now a newly freshly minted um, economics graduate. Um, and thanks very much for your time. Thank you. I had a really good time. Thanks thank so you. much. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>